Good morning, everybody. Um, Want to invite our children to Children's Church? See, I told you we'd start that again. And uh, as they go, let me open us in a, a word of prayer. Lord, this morning in, in Sunday school, we talked about eschatology. We talked about the, the end state when sin and death, hell, Satan, they're all cast out, all thrown into a sea of fire, and there's peace. There is joy. There is delight in who you are. And Lord, our hearts ache for that and long for that time. We look forward to when you will establish the world as you intended it, freed from sin, not a bond. And Lord, it's with heavy hearts this morning that we gather because in our nation, we're once again scarred by the evil of white supremacy, um, assault weapons, uh, mass shootings. Lord, we pray for the survivors and the families of the slain in, in El Paso, um, in a Walmart of all places, to go and shoot people. And Father, for Dayton last night when people were shot there. And Father, for Gilroy at a garlic festival. Lord, these are times and places where people gather and to have them violated by violence breaks our heart. And so, Lord, all across our nation, we hear people crying for justice, crying and demanding that justice be done. And we have different approaches and different understandings. But Lord, one of the things that we've learned from Exodus is that you are a God who loves justice and that you will bring it to pass. So in the meantime, Lord, as we uh, wait for the return of Christ and we stumble through, we pray for healing for the nations. We pray, Lord, that the gospel would be a balm and a help and a hope to many of the people who've been injured. And Lord, that um, we would, in our stammering, stuttering, fallen way, try to enact justice in these cases and find, Lord, hope in the midst of disaster. So Lord, have mercy on us. And Lord, I just am so brokenhearted that we get these spates of, um, of violence. And uh, Father, I, I just pray for a return in our nation to civility, if, if we were ever there. Uh, Lord, that humanity would be as you intended. And Lord, thank you for the hope that we have that Jesus will set these things right. Uh, Lord, now as we turn to your word, um, we go from the disaster to something that is so sacred and so holy. Lord, your name, who you said you were. Uh, Lord, I, I confess that I feel ill-equipped to handle this text well. Lord, this is, this is holy ground. With, with Moses, we should be taking our shoes off. We are standing. We are approaching holy ground. And so, Lord, Holy Spirit, would you be with us and help us to see and to understand? Open our hearts and our minds. Lord, filter my words that they might be right. Make them agree with what your intent is. And Lord, show us what you mean by these things. Lord, this is your word to your people. So speak to us this morning, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Um, <clears throat> so I don't know if you remember last week, I was kind of whining a little bit because chapters one and two, Moses has just got his finger on the fast forward button. Uh, things happen so quick. They move, he moves across great stretches of time and just jumps from one thing to the next. For example, one moment he's a three-month-old in a basket, the next moment he's, he's a grown adult and he's killing people. Um, one second he is uh, in Midian and the daughters of the priest of Midian are saying, hey, this, this Egyptian saved us. And his dad says, well, where is he? He's not even in the frame. And then the next thing you know, he's married and has a kid. So he just moves really super fast through those sections. Well. Moses this week takes his thumb off the fast forward button and he really slows down. This is one event and he, this is what he's been racing to get us to, is Exodus 3. So um, that's where we're going to wind up. We're going to meet God. God shows up. Now you remember my approach to the Bible is whenever God speaks, that's the most important thing. God does all the speaking. He, he is just talking quite a bit in this. And so really what we're coming to is this really, this, this peak in the text. This is what Moses has be, uh, been trying to get us to, and now we've arrived. So I, I had um, Steve read the end of chapter 2. Remember, we talked about that last week. What we saw last week with was Moses was uh, his, uh, his attempt at justice. His first attempt at justice is he, he kills a man. He went way overboard. Um, he was trying to defend a Hebrew, and he winds up killing an, uh, an Egyptian. And he knew he did wrong because he dragged the body out into the desert and tried to hide it. The next instance where he tries to institute justice is he sees two Hebrews arguing. And how does he respond to that? He chickens out. 
One of the men questioned him, are you going to kill us too? And he just, he wimps out and disappears. He never resolves that. And then when he flees to Midian, then we finally see him enact some actual justice. The, the daughters of the priest draw the water. They have labored to, to produce the water that they're going to use to feed their flocks. The other shepherds show up and chase them off. They ripped them off. They stole. And Moses drives them off and, and feeds the, the, uh, the shepherdess's sheep. So that's when he finally gets it right. We saw, hey, you know, justice is just kind of lumpy and, and odd at times. We don't exactly hit it. And then chapter 2 ends. And, and I don't know if you remember, I said, what we see at the end of chapter 2 is God enacting perfect justice. God says four things. He said that he heard the cries of his people. He remembered his covenant. He saw what was going on and he knew. And so where Moses gets it wrong, because when he killed the Egyptian, he looked this way and that. Is anybody watching? And then he kills the Egyptian. God saw. God knew. So when God enacts justice, he does it perfectly. He doesn't always do it on our time frame. We would like it to happen faster because what happens is Moses goes to Midian. God sees the oppression of his people. He knows what's going on. And then nothing happens for 40 years. And we're crying for justice. How can you let these poor Hebrews labor in this slavery in Egypt? And God is saying, I know. Hold on. So last week, I kind of compared the two. Moses' fumbling attempt at justice and God's perfect justice. And if we saw and we heard and we knew everything that God saw and heard and knew and remembered his promises, we would look and say, 40 years is exactly right, Lord. That's exactly the right time to do that. But we don't, and so we worry about that. Those same verses, the, the uh, verses 23 through 25, I don't know if you remember last week, I also said they're a bridge. They're a bridge between that portion and this portion. And so that's why I wanted to go back and look at them one more time, because what Moses tells us there, he picks up and echoes in the first section of what we're going to look at. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you look at, at verse 25, it, it's almost like an incomplete sentence. And, and now, having looked at it this way, I'm thinking, Moses started writing that, and he went, wait a minute, no, that's not how I want to tell this. And so he just ends, God knew, period. Okay, now let me tell you how that is. Because what he's about to say is going to pick up those same things, hearing, seeing, knowing his covenant. They're going to come up in there as well. So that, that's the, the portion that ties these two together. And I think it's really important because justice is part of it. Um, what God is about to do will enact justice. He will deliver slaves. Um, they've been unjustly uh, uh, captured. So that's where we're going to go. So the outline for the section really is, um, it was a real trauma for me to put an outline together on this. I think I must have changed it about eight times. And it finally occurred to me last night why I'm having such a hard time doing an outline for this. is because this is only one portion of the dialogue. <laughs> This is the, 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 the talk that Moses has with God spans chapters three and most of chapter four. And I'm taking chapter three. So I'm kind of breaking it artificially. So that's why I think maybe the outline is, is not as comfortable as I would like it to be. Um, and maybe next week we'll pick up the end of chapter three and read it as we start into chapter four. We'll see what happens. But the basic idea of what's, what's going on here is God is speaking. So what God says is the most important thing. That is, that's the big part. What he says, in the first part, he says he comes down. He's going to come down and, and deal with his people. The second thing, he says he is. He is the God who is. He announces his name. And then the third part is God makes a promise. And so that's going to be kind of our outline for this this morning. So here's what happens. It begins in chapter 3. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, Last week, we heard his name was Ruel, and now he's Jethro, um, and he's the priest of Midian. So which one? Eh, both. It's, it's okay if he has two names. That, that's something that's kind of common. Moses, um, last week we saw he had married and he had a son. Now he's a shepherd. And, and what the New Testament tells us is it's been, he's been in Midian about 40 years. So he's an older man. He's going to be 80 years old when he goes back to deliver Israel. Um, and so this is an older man who's out uh, tending the flocks. He was keeping the flocks of his father-in-law Jethro, and he led them to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So uh, if you remember where Midian is, if you can picture the map in your head, um, the Saudi Arabian Peninsula looks like a little boot, kind of sticks out of the side by uh, Africa. And then there's Africa over here, and there's a little triangle piece between the two. That's called the Sinai Peninsula. So there's 
Saudi Arabia, the Sinai Peninsula, and then Africa where Egypt and that kind of thing is. So Midian is up there in the top by uh, the top west portion of uh, Midian, of uh, the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. He's to the west of that, so he's probably off into the Sinai Peninsula somewhere. That's where he's taking the sheep. And he's out feeding them. So that's where he's led them. And he takes them to some place called Horeb, the mountain of God. Um, at this point, it's not the mountain of God. It's a mountain. Nothing's happened there yet. Nothing that we know of, but it's coming. So Moses is kind of writing this, what's called proleptically. He's looking back and saying, this is the mountain of God. And if you remember, uh, if you, I don't know if you heard it when Steve was reading, he says at some point, God promises, you'll know that, I, that these promises are true because you'll come back and worship on this mountain. So where do they show up later in, in what mountain do they show up at where they meet God again? Mount Sinai. So Mount, the, Mount Horeb is Mount Sinai. It's the same place. It's got a couple of different names too. Um, so it's the mountain of God. It's not the place where God lives. We'll see that in a little bit. It's the place where God meets his people. And so while he's at the mountain, Mount Horeb, um, it says the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked and the bush was burning and yet it was not consumed. So Moses is leading the sheep and he looks up and he goes, oh, there's a fire. And he's doing something with the sheep and he looks again and he goes, that same bush is still burning. And he keeps looking, he says, that bush is not burning up. There's something odd going on there. And, and so he says, I'm gonna turn aside and I'm gonna go look at that. Now, when Lisa and I first moved out here, um, we were taking the back road to Santa Clarita. We went San Francisco Canyon Road and we were kind of winding through there because it's just, uh, the, the canyon's really pretty. We got to a certain point on that road where I thought we had landed on another planet. The wildfires had come through and the shrubs were just burnt. It just looked terrible. So this idea that a bush would be there and not be consumed, that would be a curious sight. That would be something to stare at. Why is the bush burning and it's not consumed? Because it's not on fire. The angel of the Lord is present in the bush and is appearing as a flame of fire. The fire is coming out from the midst of the bush. So when Moses looks, it's not like he looked up and, and the sun was shining through the bush and it was an optical illusion. The fire is coming from within the bush. It is a miracle that's happened. This is something that's, that's not common. That's why Moses says, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. I would too. <laughs> I'd want to know what's going on. And we'll come back to the bush, why it's a bush, why it's not burning, that kind of stuff in a little bit. So as he's approaching, it says, when the Lord saw him turn aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. So as he's drawing near to the bush to investigate what's going on, God speaks and it stops him. He says, don't come any closer. Notice he says, don't come any closer. He doesn't say because you're about to transgress onto holy ground. He says, you're on holy ground. Don't come any closer. You can, you're, you're, he's already on. Why is the ground holy? Because the Lord has showed up because God's there, that's why the ground is holy. And so he tells Moses, take the sandals off your feet. Now I heard a couple of different approaches to why he tells him to take his sandals off his feet. One of them that I wanna discount real quick is, they're made out of leather, that's a dead animal, that's unclean, that's gotta go. Well, we haven't got those laws yet. We're, we're not at, at uh, um, uh, Deuteronomy or Leviticus yet. So what's clean and unclean has been revealed in the, the uh, flood. When Noah got on the ark, there were two animals, except for the clean ones, there were seven. So the, the dead thing, I don't think that really works. I don't think that's what he means there. The only mention is take them off, not they're unclean. And it's Moses' problem, he's on holy ground. So what I think is going on is this is God's way of saying, you're in the presence of something great, take your shoes off, humble yourself. Recognize your creatureliness. I am the one who is worthy. You are gonna humble yourself and take your shoes off. So Moses stops. He doesn't come any closer and, he's, and God announces to him who he's speaking. He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. So seeing the angel in the bush, Moses hides his face because he's terrified. It's God. God is speaking to him. 
Uh, it, he announces himself and he repeats this re a number of times in this section. I am the God of Isaac, or God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, when I mentioned that last week, I said, do you remember from Genesis why it was that Isaac and uh, uh, Jacob are together in one section of Genesis? It's because the covenant is made with Abraham. It's successfully transmitted to Isaac and to Jacob, and therefore the covenant comes to us. So that's what he was saying. That's what God is saying here is, I'm the God of the covenant that I made with your fathers. This is who I am. That's who he is. Now, real quick tangent on this. Jesus does a very interesting thing with this. He's talking with the Sadducees, and the Sadducees had some peculiar theological things. They didn't accept anything but the first five books of the Bible. That was all they accepted. Anything else, that's nice writings, but it's not inspired. We only follow the first five books of the Bible. And therefore, they denied a resurrection. They denied that there is life after death. Um, they didn't believe angels, that kind of stuff. They had some really quirky kind of stuff. And so when they asked Jesus one time, they're trying to trick him, right? They're going to show him how clever they are. They say, okay, there's a guy, he gets married and he has a wife and they don't have any kids and, and he dies. And so his brother takes her and he tries to fulfill the Leverate uh, marriage vow and, and give her children and he dies and, and so on and so on and all seven die. So now, Mr. Smarty Pants, in the resurrection, whose husband will she be? You know, trying to trip up Jesus and he goes... Oh, you poor people, you just don't understand. You don't know the nature of the resurrection. We won't be married or given in marriage in the resurrection. We'll be like angels. And as far as the resurrection, he, he goes, all right, let me, let me enter into your theological position. Let's go to the Pentateuch. At the burning bush, didn't God say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Is he the God of the dead or the living? He's the God of the living. Therefore, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive. You really need to study your Bibles better. He, he goes here for that. And, and so many people that I've read on that go, I would have never done that. I think if I'd have pulled something like that in seminary, I would have failed preaching. But Jesus does it because he's authoritative and he knows the word. And so that's what he uses to prove these men are still alive. So Moses hears this. He hears this announcement of this is who God is and he hides his face. He's terrified to be there. So that's his introduction. That sets up the scene. That puts the stage. Moses is now shoeless and face covered. A bush is burning and God is speaking. That's the scene. Then God said, I have surely seen the afflictions of my people. I have seen. Isn't that what he said at the end of chapter 2? I see. I have seen the afflictions of my people who are in Egypt. And I have heard their cry. That's what he said. He heard. I heard their cry. Uh, because of their taskmasters and their suffering, I have come down to deliver them. Why is God meeting Moses on Mount Sinai and Mount Horeb in a burning bush? He came because he's going to deliver his people. This was the covenant promise to Abraham. In Genesis 15, he told Abraham, your, your offspring are going to go into a land that's not their own. They're going to be oppressed for 400 years, and then I will lead them out. I will take them out. So God now has said 400 years is up. Time has come, here I am. He comes down to deliver them, to lead them out um, of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them into a land, um, uh, 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 to a land good and broad, a land flowing with milk and honey. Isn't that a strange picture? Like, did they have rivers of milk and, and rivers of honey? Honey doesn't flow particularly well. What he's saying there is, think about this for a second. Put yourself in the, the sandals of the Hebrews. What do they do for a living? They're shepherds, aren't they? So the idea of a land flowing with milk would be they get milk from their herds. The promise of having a land that's flowing with milk means we're going to take our herds to this place and the, the pasture lands are going to be so rich and so everywhere that we will produce so much milk it'll just be running down the streets. It's going to be a beautiful land. It's going to be magnificent. What about the flowing with honey? Well, honey was a really special thing. It was a, a special treat. But think about it from an agricultural perspective. Where do we get honey? We get honey from bees. Where do bees get honey? They collect pollen. So this promised land that's going to flow with milk and with honey is going to have bees, and there's going to be so much produce, there's going to be so many flowers and so much beauty there that these bees are going to produce so much honey that it's just going to overflow. This is the promise of where he's going to take them. This is the land that I'm going to give you, a rich and a beautiful a green land, a, a land that produces, that's where I'm going to take you. 
Where is that place? It is the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. That was something that he had told him also. And he says, and now behold, the cry of the people has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses asks a very good question. So this is the God who came down. He came down for the purpose of delivering his people. He announces who he is, and then Moses asks a very good question. He said, um, who, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Egypt out? <clears throat> I think what he's reminding God and reminding himself is, um, God, I'm a wanted man. I murdered somebody. I can't go back to Egypt. If I go back to Egypt, they're not going to listen to me. They're going to throw me in jail. Lord, I, I'm not sure you, you, you know, I, I don't understand how this is going to work. How are we going to do this? And God's promise is, I will be with you. This will be the sign that I will be with you. When they, you bring the people out of Egypt, you're coming right back here. That's his promise. So then Moses says, okay, I got it. You're going to be faithful. Um, he says, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of my fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Doesn't that sound like an odd question? Moses, you don't know the name of your God? Again, put yourself back into that situation. The entire world at that point was, uh, had, had numerous gods. There, there were tons of gods. So for Moses to come up and say, um, I am coming in the name of the God of your fathers, God is a generic term, right? It, it was a generic, in there it was uh, Elohim, but for us it would be just God. It, it's a generic term. For example, if we're talking about Roman history, we might say Zeus was the god of thunder. Well, he's a god. We put a little g there because he's not a real god, but I mean the category of a god, right? This is not just any god. So Moses is saying, Lord, when I go to the people and they say, which God are you representing? They need, they need an answer. I don't want to come and say uh, uh, Moloch or Ra, the sun god, or uh, Baal or anything. Lord, I need to say, I need to announce which God I'm speaking of. There is one God for them. So he asked that question, Who's, whose name shall I say? God's answer is earth shattering. First of all, he doesn't answer the question. God said to Moses, I am who I am. So he doesn't answer what his name is at that point. He announces who he is. Why would he answer the question that way? Why would he announce his being? Well, think about the context here, right? Chapter 1, Moses is pulled out of the Nile by the Pharaoh's daughter, and she names him Moses because she drew him out. So if you say, what is your name? He says, Moses, because... I was Moshe. I was drawn out of the Nile. Well, why were you in the Nile? Well, because the Pharaoh was trying to kill me. He was trying to kill all these children. Why would Pharaoh do that? Because he was terrified of the Israelites. So his name is rooted in a story. It begins in a place. Who's the other person that we heard named in this story so far? His son Gershom, right? He's, he's, a, he's in the land of Midian. He marries uh, one of the daughters of the priest of Midian, and he has a son, and he names him Gershom. Why? Because he's a sojourner, which sounds like Gershom. So why is your name Gershom? Oh, well, it's because here, I was born here in Midian, but you know, I'm not really from Midian. My dad was from another place. He's just sojourning here. So it tells a story. It tells the story of the person, right? That's the biblical way that names were given. Not so much for us, but that was how it was done then. So when you go and you ask God, what is your name? What story is he going to tell you? I'm the God of the heavens and the earth. That is absolutely true. That's, that's a point I've been making repeatedly. He is above all these other gods. He's not like Baal, who might be a Canaanite god of the hills or something. He created the hills. He is not like Ra, the sun god of Egypt. He created the sun, and then when he did it, he didn't even name it. He said the greater light. He wouldn't even mention the name of it. So we could say he is the god of heavens and the earth, couldn't we? Here's the problem. What was he doing before he created the heavens and the earth? No clue. As a matter of fact, before creation, we can't even wrap words about what he was doing. 
It doesn't exist. We're created beings. We're in this three-dimensional world with time rolling on. We can only speak in these kind of terms. So when we ask the question, what was God doing before creation? I don't know. I, I don't know how to explain it. I don't think human language, whatever language, could capture what he was doing. So when, he, when Moses says, what's your name? God doesn't go to creation. He goes beyond creation. He says, I am who I am. That's my story. So when people talk about the creation of the universe, how did the universe begin? Uh, Dr. Stephen Hawking had a theory. Um, this gets a little weird, so stick with me for a second. On the quantum level, now quantum physics is what makes up atoms. So it's really super low. On the quantum level, there were particles that would fluctuate. There were fluctuations in the quantum level. And sometimes these particles would separate and then annihilate each other. You get a, pro, uh, a, a particle and an antiparticle. And one Tuesday afternoon, about 3 o'clock, the particles missed each other. And a universe exploded. And here it is. That, that's the creation of the universe. Some people don't, are really not happy with the universe having a beginning. And so there's one theory that says the universe just always was. It exploded, it spread out, it got to a certain spot, and then it slowly slowed down and then began to collapse in on itself. It collapses in and compresses down to a, a, a one little tiny spot, and then it explodes back out again. What's the problem with these explanations? They can explain, and I don't know if they're true or not, I, I, you know, who knows. What they can explain is how. None of them can explain why. Why is there a fluctuation in the quantum level? Why? Why should there be? Why should there exist a quantum level? Why should the universe always exp exist, expand and collapse, expand and collapse? Where did it start? Why would it start? Why would it exist? None of them can explain why. God just did. He said, I am who I am. If you start with absolutely nothing, period, nothing, absolutely zero, and you let that nothing sit for 10 gazillion years, what do you wind up with at the end? Nothing. Nothing's changed because there's nothing to change. So what God is announcing here is he's saying, my essential nature is the Hebrew verb yaha to be. His nature is existence. So if you have children and you're going through the children's catechism, one of the questions is, who made you? And the answer is, God made me. And the next question is, what else did God make? And then the answer is, God made all things. And then the kid goes off script and says, who made God? Every kid asks, asks the question. When, when you're catechizing them, they all ask the question, who made God? Nobody made God. God is existence. If there was no God, there would be nothing else. He just is. So he is eternal. He has always been. He is who he is. He just is existence. So when you ask God, what is your name? His answer is, my story is being, existence. Now he goes on. He says, I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, when they ask you that question, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. The, the word behind that, if you notice in your Bible, it's all caps. The word behind that is four Hebrew letters, Y-H-W-H. And it's not translated. It, it's, it's a word that the, the Hebrews wouldn't touch. In the 6th to the 10th century, there were some Jews called the Masoretes. And what they found in that time period was that Hebrew was beginning to be mispronounced. You see, Hebrew is a language with only consonants. It doesn't have any vowels in it. Because Hebrew was primarily a spoken language. It wasn't primarily written. But it was written down, so they wrote down the consonants. And when they did, after centuries, especially after the destruction of Jerusalem and the Jews were scattered, they began to lose, how do we pronounce these words? What word are we looking at here? So the Masoretes said, well, we have to insert the vowels somehow. We've got to put the vowels in here because we want people to remember how to do it. But we will not disrupt the holy text. I'm not going to put a space between two letters in the holy text because God wrote it. So what they came up with was a system of annotating around the Hebrew letters. They're called vowel dots, although not all of them are dots. So when they came to the sacred name, YHWH, they didn't touch it. They didn't want to say the sacred name because 
The second commandment says, don't take my name, don't take the Lord, name of the Lord in vain. And they were afraid they might take it in vain, so they didn't translate the word. Instead, what they did was whenever they saw the holy name, Y-H-W-H, they would say Adonai. And Adonai means the Lord or my Lord. So they'd say Adonai. So what the Masorites did is they came to the holy name and they put the vowel dots around it for Adonai. So you can always tell a first-year Hebrew student because they're going to mispronounce that word every time. They're supposed to say Adonai, but they'll say Yahweh or something along those lines because they're going to get it wrong. So in our Bibles, when we get to the holy name, you'll see it in small caps. Most often it is the Lord. The problem is there are places in the Bible that say Adonai uh, 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 Yahweh, the Lord God, the Lord I am. So how do you translate that? Well, you put Lord and then God in all caps, or in this case, I am in all caps. But the word behind it is Yahweh, and what Yahweh we think means is it comes from that, that verbal root, to be. So what God is saying is, my name is what my nature is. My name is existence. It is being. It just is. So by the way, when we say the word hallelujah, what we're saying here is halal is Hebrew for worship or praise. So we're saying praise. The ooh at the end of halal, halal ooh, is all of you. It's, it's saying all of you praise. What are we to praise? Yah. Yah is short for Yahweh. It's, it's the shortened version of it. So think about this. When we say the word hallelujah, what we're saying is everybody, everybody should praise I am. Everybody should praise the God who is existence. Everybody praise the eternal one. It's huge. We just say it really quick, but there's huge meaning to it. So he says to them, tell them I am. I am has sent me to you. And God also said to the people of Israel, the Lord, that's Yahweh, I am, the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So there's some question, is this the first time anybody has ever heard God pronounce his name Yahweh? Is, is that possible? Well, if you start flipping back in chapters to the, through the beginning of Exodus and, and into Genesis, you'll see Yahweh mentioned a lot. It comes up. So was that Moses interpreting and applying the, the sacred name into those verses, or was that the name that they knew him by? Um, I'm not positive. I don't know if this was a brand new thing or if it was what Abraham knew God by was Yahweh. Or did he just know him as Elohim or El Shaddai or something along those lines? Don't know. But what he's saying is from now on, this is my name. And this is the name that's right in the middle of his covenant promise. I'm coming for my people. And that's the name you'll remember me by. So that's what he tells them. He's gonna they're going to remember him by that name forever. And so then the rest of it is where he makes his promise. Go and gather the, the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of our fathers, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done in Egypt and I promise I will bring you up out of the land of affliction. God has made a promise. He made a promise to Abraham that he would do this. He makes a promise now. A promise is a covenant. That's, that's the language for it in the Bible. It, at its root, what a covenant is, is God's promise. Now put this in the context of what God has just told us. God, what's your name? I am who I am. Existence exists because I exist. I am the source. I am the reason that everything exists. And this God says, well, I make a promise. Did he make a promise because there was a chance that, on two, that he might forget to do this? That, that it might slip his mind or he might get busy with something else? The promise was not for him. He knew what he was going to do. He knew because there's nothing in the universe that can oppose him. He is. So why does he make a promise? Why does he say, I promise I'm going to do this? Because we need to have the promise. We need to hear, Lord, you're going to do these things. We need to have him commit himself to it because of our weakness, not because of his. So he makes this promise. And so the rest of the chapter is him explaining what he's going to do. 
He is going to come and the the elders of the the people of Israel are going to go to Pharaoh with Moses and they're going to say, you have to let us go because we're going to go out in the desert. We're going to worship the God who is. And uh, so you need to let us go for three days out into the desert. He says, that's what I want you to go tell him. And I know for a fact he's not going to believe you. He will not let you go. Why? Because he's stubborn, he's obstinate, and he will only release you with a firm hand. And so that's my plan, is I will bring a firm hand to him. And then the, the chapter ends with the most remarkable thing. This is the part that, that it, is, it seems so appropriate that this is in the context of promise. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver, gold, jewelry, and for clothing. You will put them on your sons and daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. What do you think of when you hear plunder? Pirates of the Caribbean is what I think of. You know, pirates plunder. Arr, let's go plunder that ship. Are these guys plundering? They're coming up and they're saying, hey, could you give us some gold? Yes, please, take the gold. You know, I don't have a shirt. Take this. Here, here's a really nice gown. Go ahead and take that. They're plundering it because the Egyptians are just giving it to them. Why does it end that way? Why do they leave that way? I think God is bringing this story full circle. How do they come into Egypt? Did they come in as conquered people? They were defeated in a war and drug into it? No. Pharaoh said, Joseph, I want you to take some carts. Only, only important people ride on carts. Take carts and go get your family. Bring them in. When they came in, old Jacob comes up to Pharaoh and announces a blessing on him. The greater blessing, the lesser. And Pharaoh's response is, you settle anywhere you want. You take the best of the land. Now they're slaves, now they're oppressed, but it comes full circle again. When they leave, the Egyptians will be blessing them, throwing, showering them with gifts. So that's the nature of that covenant. That's that covenant promise that God would lead them in and he would bring them right back out. So what we've seen is God comes down, he sees his people, God is. I don't know how else to say it, God is, he just is. And then God makes these promises. So how does this come to us then? So this is beautiful promises for, uh, for Israel. How does this come to us? Well, I think we need to go back to the burning bush for a second. Why was it a bush? Well, first of all, there weren't a whole bunch of options available in the Sinai Desert. There were probably a lot of dirt, a lot of rocks, a few bushes, and then I guess Moses had a bunch of sheep with him. So I don't think God would send his angel to descend on one of these sheep and make the sheep burn but not burn and then speak from the sheep or the goat because he didn't want to confuse Moses. There's there's a story of a demon God that lives out in the desert. And so it could be confusing to Moses. God's purpose in, in revealing himself at this point is to make sure Moses understands this is who I am. So if he looks like he's a goat speaking in the desert, that could really make him think, oh my gosh, then maybe the goat demon is right. So he's not going to put a fire on a goat. So let's remove that um, um, burning material. That can't happen. What about a rock? He could have had a flame descend on a rock. As a matter of fact, when um, Samson's birth is announced, that's kind of what happens is Samson's parents come out and they, they meet the angel of the Lord, who's here. They meet the angel of the Lord, they bring him food, and fire comes down and consumes it off the rock. So God could have done that. Um, would that, that would be spectacular to see fire coming out of a rock, but it wouldn't be mind-stopping because rocks don't burn up. So that wouldn't really do it. Why is it a bush? Well, it's because bushes are supposed to burn. If you set them on fire, they burn. And yet this bush is sitting here in the middle of the desert, consumed in fire, and it's not being consumed. It's just sitting there. It should have been consumed. It should have burned up and burned out, but it didn't. Moses comes walking up, that's a curious thing, and God halts him. He says, stop, you're on on holy ground. Who's Moses? Moses is a murderer. He, He killed an Egyptian in cold blood. He looked this way and that to make sure the coast was clear, and then he rose up and he struck the man down. From the language that's used, he probably violently beat him to death. And he walks up to this burning bush and he's on holy ground. What happens to sinners who walk into the presence of God? They should be consumed, and they're not. So you get this picture of this bush that's not consumed, and then God did that because he's saying, I'm promising you something, I'm showing you something beautiful. 
You come into my presence, and what Hebrews 12 says at the end is God is a consuming fire. Uses the word consuming, but the bush isn't consumed, and Moses isn't consumed. So what's going on at the bush? Why is it that both, neither one of them are burned up? Well, I think the key is, what is he seeing there? As he looks at the bush, it says he saw the angel of the Lord. Now, the angel of the Lord is not like any other angel in the Bible. When the angel of the Lord speaks, it's God speaking. As a matter of fact, with, with the story of Samson's parents, after the angel of the Lord consumes their offering, their food that he brought him, um, um, Samson's father Manoah looked and said, we're going to die because we have seen God. The only thing they've seen is the angel of the Lord. Moses hides his face because he doesn't, he's, he's afraid to look at God. It's the angel of the Lord that's there. So do you get the sense there's something more to this angel? There's, there's something more to what's going on here. Now, when we look at this from a New Testament perspective, we run into an immediate problem. John chapter 1, verse 18, no one has ever seen God. Who's Moses looking at? Moses is looking at a burning bush. He sees the angel of the Lord and he covers his face because he's afraid to look at God. No one has seen God at any time, ever. So what's going on here? Let John finish. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So the theory is the angel of the Lord is God the Son before the incarnation. So when Moses meets the angel of the Lord at the burning bush, he meets God. Now, this is important. Remember we said when you get to what happened before creation, we run out of words. We can't really explain what was going on. We don't know what, the, what God was doing at that point. We, we have no words to wrap around it. But when we talk about our God, we talk about the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. These three persons, three individual persons, God the Father is not God the Son. He's not. God the Spirit is not God the Father. He's not. There are three distinct persons, and yet they are one God. So you can't say, well, I'm going to take the Holy Spirit out and say the Holy Spirit is not a person. You don't have God anymore. And it's not you have two-thirds of God. You don't have God, period, because all of deity is in the Father. He is everything that divinity is. The Son is everything that divinity is. The Holy Spirit is everything that divinity is, and yet they are one God. Do you see what I mean about we run out of words? I don't know how to explain it. I don't know how, to, how do we unpack that. When we talk, when theologians talk about the Trinity, one of the terms we use is the economic Trinity. That does not mean how they spend their money <laughs> or commerce between them. It's not what we mean by economic. Economic, the older term meant what are the jobs, what are the roles of each person. And so we can only look at this from this side of creation. We can only look at this as God has explained himself in creation. The things that are revealed are for us and for our children. The hidden things belong to him and we don't know. So this is our stammering, stuttering baby talk as we're talking about God, the economy of the Trinity. God the Father is never seen as being sent. He ne Jesus never sent the Father. The Father sent Jesus. And so when we talk about the economic trinity, when we look at the Father, we say the Father is the head of the trinity. He is the one who actuates. He is the one who plans. He sends, he directs, he speaks. He is the one who does that. When we talk about the economy, the economic role of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit reveals. He speaks. He, he spoke through the prophets. He inspired the written word of God. He empowers. He comes on people so that they may do jobs. He is the action of the Trinity, he, that's his role, is to carry out these actions. What's the role of the Son? The role of the Son is and has always been, he would be the Redeemer. That's why Revelation says that he is the Lamb slain from the foundations of the world. Was he a Lamb that was slain from the foundations of the world? No, but it's a way of picturing this is the role, this is the economy of the Son in the Trinity, is that he is the Redeemer. So now look at this, this moment in time. We have the, spirit, the angel of the Lord on a bush in a, a flame of fire, not consuming the bush. A sinner walks up and he's not consumed. Why? Because no one has seen God at any time. The only God who is from the Father has revealed him. Moses meets Jesus, pre-incarnate Jesus, before Jesus added to his infinity, his, his perfection, 
his omnipresence, his omniscience, his everything, he added on to that humanity. Now, does that mean that God changed? The Son of God took on humanity, he, he changed? The Bible says he emptied himself. Well, let me ask the, the mathematicians, what is infinity plus one? Infinity, nothing changed, didn't, didn't budget a notch. So Jesus the Son, God the Son, could add a human, human nature to himself and not be diminished in any way. But again, this is holy ground and it gets confusing. How can somebody be fully divine and fully human at the same time? I don't know. All I know is somebody did it. So this is who Moses is meeting. Before Jesus is born, he's meeting the Son of God. And that's why he's not consumed. There's one other instance where something like this happens. After Jesus is born, he takes a couple of his disciples and he walks up on the mountain and he prays. And when they, when they wake up and look at him, his face is transfigured like the sun. Here's the fire, here's the glow, here's the, the, the shining majesty. And who's standing right next to him? Moses. Moses and Elijah are standing next. They're standing on a mountain next to the Son of God who is glowing like a fire. And what are they discussing? It says, they discussed his departure. Okay, peel that back a notch, look at the Greek word. You know what the Greek word is? His exodus. They are on the mountain talking about Jesus, about his exodus. Moses is on the mountain talking to God about the exodus. This is the Son of God meeting his people in the midst of the covenant promise, I see, I know, I hear, I will deliver you. I will lead you out. One other place that's mentioned, and it's not, the, the, the term son of, uh, uh, angel of the Lord's not mentioned, but I think it's appropriate, is when Joshua is about to enter the promised land and he's getting ready to go survey um, uh, Jericho and figure out what's going on and he runs into somebody. And the man says, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. And, and Joshua says, are you for us or for our enemies? And his answer is neither. That, what the response then is, is uh, Joshua bows down and worships him. Now, if he's an angel and he accepts worship, he's a fallen angel. But if he is the angel of the Lord and he accepts worship, and so that, that's a similar kind of thing, is this commander of the army of the Lord shows up and worship happens. And his response is, are you for us or against us? Neither one. I am. I am carrying this out. I'm not for you or against you. I'm about to do what I'm going to do. You happen to benefit from it. So I, I think it's a, it's a pretty clear picture of this is Jesus that he's met. So one other place, is just to show that I'm not making this up, um, there's one other place that I'd like to point out. Um, Jude, chapter five, or Jude chapter 5. Jude is only one chapter. Jude verse 5. What it says is, and I forgot to write it down, so give me a second to find it. Because I want to quote it exactly. I want to get it right. Jude verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Who saved a people out of the land of Egypt? Jesus did that. That's what he's promised. That's his covenant promises. I'm going to deliver you. And what Jude tells us is that was Jesus doing that. So now one last, one last New Testament quote. John chapter 8, Jesus is, as usual, arguing with Pharisees. Pharisees don't like him. They're, they're debating some important stuff, and so they say, well, um, we have Abraham as our father. And the implication is, who's your dad? We heard about you. Your, your, your mom said she was a virgin and she didn't have a baby. There's later rabbinical writing that says she was either sleeping with or raped by a Roman, is what they said. So that's kind of what they're throwing at him. And he says, he looks at him and says, don't, don't tell me Abraham is your father. If, if Abraham was your father, you'd do what Abraham did. Abraham saw my day and he delighted. He rejoiced. He was happy to see my day. And the Pharisees' minds just, wait a minute. You're not even 30 years old. And you know Abraham? What are you, insane? And what he says is not a grammatical mistake. He looks them right in the eye and he says, before Abraham was, 
I am. Ego eme. I am. That's how the Greek translation translates the holy name is ego eme. And do you think that they misunderstood him? The response is they picked up stones. They're going to kill him. They understood what he just said. You have just announced that you are the God of the Old Testament. You are the God of the Hebrew Bible. You are, I am. You uttered the holy name and you're not allowed to do that. So this is why I said this is who Jesus is in the midst of this. Now remember my outline for the book of Exodus. God delivers us. God is our ruler. He rules us. And God dwells with us. At least in this first portion, who is our deliverer? Jesus Christ. This is why I said when we understand the book of Genesis, who our God is and who we are, when it comes to Exodus, we need to understand it as well. This is who our God is. He is a consuming fire. You're only safe in the sun who will protect you from being consumed. That's it. It's the only safe place to be with our God who's a consuming fire. He's come to deliver us. Doesn't that sound like the gospel? Jesus came to deliver us. He rules over us. He is the head of the church. And he will dwell with us. He took a human nature so that he could be with us. This is just the first part of this episode. <laughs> We've got to get to chapter 4 and unpack the rest of it. We'll do that next week. But let's, let's close in prayer now. God, we, um, we, we sit here with shoes off, standing on holy ground as we understand who it is that you say you are. When you tell us your story, your story begins with, I am. It begins with existence, with being. And Lord, we confess that this entire universe is derived from who you are. It is because you have said, let there be. The Bible tells us you uphold it all by the power of your word. It is the exertion of your desire that the universe exists. And in all this tiny little speck of universe, on this tiny little speck of a galaxy hidden somewhere in there, in one little spiral arm is this tiny, tiny little sun and circling that are little tiny dust balls and we're standing on one of them. And Lord, what you told us this morning is you've seen on that tiny little speck of dust, you have seen her plight and you came down. Lord, thank you for coming to us. Thank you for being the God who would come and be with us. Thank you, God the Son, for taking on human nature, for, for dying in our place, for rising again for our justification, and for promising to come back and be with us forever. Thank you, God the Father, who sent the Son, who said, Son, I want you to go and redeem a people to yourself. Thank you, God the Holy Spirit, who spoke long ago through the prophets, who seals us now for this new covenant promise. Lord, you are beautiful. You're more than we can understand, and we're grateful for that. Lord, would you be big in our eyes? We ask in Christ's name. Amen.